So I firmly believe that every single person can understand science, belongs in science, right? Deserves to see themselves as succeeding in this field. And they just need someone who can provide them with that reassurance and that guidance and be like, no, this is how you do it. Hello, world, and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today, we'll be chatting with Angeline Dukes, a neuroscience PhD candidate at the University of California, Irvine, where she studies the long-term effects of adolescent nicotine and cannabinoid exposure. She previously completed her BA in biology at Fisk University, followed by her MSc in neuroscience at UC Irvine. Future Dr. Dukes is also the president and founder of Black and Neuro, a grassroots organization that fosters community and connection between Black neuroscientists around the world. I am over the moon to chat with Angeline today about her research, about Black and Neuro, her plans for the future, and so much more. But let's start from the very beginning. Angeline, what's your story? Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I'm really excited to be on this podcast and I absolutely love the work that you do with it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So I guess with me, um, starting with the beginning would be that I am a first generation American. Uh, My parents are immigrants. My mom is from Trinidad and my dad is from Haiti. And so growing up, I didn't even know that being a neuroscientist was a career option. I had absolutely no idea what that meant. Um, I never saw anyone who looked like me, who was a science professor, right? You grow up and you see like Albert Einstein, you see like Bill Nye, right? And they're old white men. (laughs) And so as a young black girl, I did not see myself in these spaces at all. Um, And as a daughter of immigrants, I really wasn't sure of like all the different career options I could have. So I knew growing up, becoming a doctor, like a medical doctor, or becoming a lawyer um, were the things that you could do to like make your parents proud. And I had Mm -hmm. no interest in political science at all. (laughs) That was just not my thing. Um, And so I decided at a pretty young age that I was going to be a pediatrician. I was like, oh, I love babies. I think kids are great. And like, I could help them. And like, I want to help the world. So this is what I want to (laughs) do. Um, and so that was that was my path. That was what I was going to do. And all throughout um, elementary school, middle school, high school, like if you asked me what I was going to do with my life, I was going to medical school. I was going to be a pediatrician. Like I had that set. I just knew that that's what I was going to do. So I went to Fisk University for undergrad. It's a historically black college university. Um, it's in Nashville, Tennessee. It's fairly small. It's about like a thousand students in total. <laughs> so it's a very oh, small wow, university. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really small. <laughs> um, but it, it was perfect. Like I absolutely loved my time at Fisk. It was the best experience I've ever had. It's where I met like my best friends. I met my husband there. Um, but that's also the place where I first met black women who were professors and who were scientists. Um, Mm -hmm. This was the first time I ever met someone with a doctorate who was a black woman. And that experience in itself was so meaningful for me, Um, especially when about halfway through undergrad, I realized I didn't want to go to med school and I didn't want to be a pediatrician. I didn't want to, you know, do this thing that I had been dreaming of my entire life because I wasn't actually passionate about it. Um, I realized that I wanted to do it because my family wanted me to, because I felt like it was something that would make them proud of me. And it wasn't really where my heart was. Um, So then I 
had to really reflect and think about the things that made me happy, the things that I was passionate about, the things that brought me joy. And I realized I really love teaching. I love mentoring. I love talking to students. I love getting them excited about science. Um, I was a tutor and I was a mentor all throughout undergrad and just helping my peers like understand scientific concepts that they previously just did not even, they were just like, I don't know what this is. I don't care what this is. Um, and just helping them like, no, like you can really understand this. Like this is a thing. This is how it benefits your life like this is you know how it relates and just having them gain that level of understanding and just being able to see themselves like okay maybe science isn't so hard and maybe I do belong in this field and maybe I can understand these concepts um, in a way that's relevant to my life and so I really love doing that and I decided I was like I want to teach I want to become a professor but I had no idea how to do that <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, and like I said, I think I was really lucky in that I went to an HBCU because I did have these Black women who were professors who were like, you want to do what I do? Let me show you how. Um, and they were the ones who were like, you can go to graduate school, get a PhD. This is how you do this. And I was like, okay, cool. What's grad school? <laughs> Because as I mentioned, my whole life, I had just been like on this med school track. I just knew, you know, med school is the way to go. This is what I wanted to do. And so um, the idea of going to graduate school was just completely foreign to me. Um, when I and I can tell you more about this if you're interested. But I when I was applying for graduate school, um, I only applied to I was going to apply to five schools. I actually submitted four applications because like the night that the applications were due, I had this like existential crisis <laughs> where it was just like, there's no reason for me to apply. They're not going to accept me. Why would I even bother? I don't have enough research, research experience. I don't know what I'm doing. So like, oh. there's no reason. Yeah. And um, I had a friend who was just like, you know, the worst thing they can do is tell you no. And so I was like, all right. I got like three interviews um, and one acceptance. And so that's how I'm here at UCI right now, which is which has been amazing in itself. Um, but yeah, that's really how my story got started. It, it really just kind of happened when I was applying for graduate programs. Like I said, I didn't know what I was doing or what I was getting myself into. I only applied for interdisciplinary or interdepartmental programs um, because I really wasn't fully sure what neuroscience entailed, like all of the different research areas and everything I could do. Um, UCI happened to have an interdepartmental neuroscience program. And so that's what made me apply to it. Um, mm. But I love it now. Like I absolutely <laughs> love the field. I love all the people in it. Um, and of yeah. course, as you know, I really love black and neuro. Absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. I'm wondering if you could speak more to the crisis that you were feeling as you realized that medicine wasn't the thing for you. I I have had people in my life go through very similar moments where they go, mm -hmm. I've only dreamt of being a doctor. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Did you panic? Did you think, my goodness, who am I without this path that I visualized my whole life? Oh, yes, absolutely. I was, <laughs> I was very distraught. <laughs> that was my first existential crisis. So like, that was the first one. And then the second one was when I was actually submitting applications for grad school. So yeah, um, yeah during the so I was actually part of a, a BS to MD program. So my school um, had a partnership with Meharry Medical College, which is also an HBCU. Um, mm -hmm. And it was across the street from my university. And um, I got into that program my freshman year. And basically, you would spend the summer taking pre-med classes and preparing mm -hmm for the MCAT and meeting with doctors and residents and all of that. It's a fantastic program. Like I 100% mm -hmm. recommend it for people who are interested in going to medical school. But through that program, 
I realized that this was not for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I think just, you know, going through it, talking to different people, seeing what they actually do, like getting that experience. I just knew I, I could do it, but I wasn't passionate enough about it. And when I first realized that, I absolutely freaked out. (laughs) I uh, had called my husband, who was then my boyfriend, um, and I was just like, I don't know what to do if I'm not a medical doctor. (laughs) Like, I don't I don't know what to do with myself if this isn't what I'm going to do with my life. And I was mostly really worried about telling my family. I think Mm -hmm. talking to like my parents and um, especially telling my dad, too, because I just I know how hard he's worked. Um, that, you know, I know these are the sacrifices that you all have made. I know that this is what you want for me, but this isn't what I want. And I think that scared me the most, but they were so supportive. Like after the initial shock wore off, (laughs) this isn't, you know, what I'm actually going to be doing. Um, eventually they did come around. My dad is so excited right now. He was just telling me, like, he's so proud of me for finishing my PhD this year. And he, like, yeah. can't wait for graduation. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, I can imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it took some some coming around. But, like, now whenever he, like, tells people, like, oh, my daughter's a neuroscientist. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just, I, I could tell he's really proud of me. And I think that by choosing the thing that makes me the happiest, that's what makes him the most proud. Mm-hmm. And I think so many parents, if they're listening to this, I don't know how many parents listen to this, but even if they have young children, I want that to be in their minds that mm-hmm. a child being happy is so much more paramount than the success of their career, even though you're incredibly successful. So it's not like you've been lost on that front, but for <laughs> situations where some people might think, oh, but I really want the security of a medical career. Well, girl, you got a security of a professorship. (laughs) Congratulations. How did it happen? How did you choose the school that you're going to be joining very, very soon? Yeah. So uh, honestly, it just kind of happened. I feel like this is like the theme of my life in general. (laughs) I just happened to be in the right place, the right time, talking to the right people or like things just kind of happen. And I don't want to downplay all of the hard work and effort that I put into it. Um, I'm really trying to do better at being like, no, like I have worked really hard to be able to get into these types of positions but it really as similar to like how black and neuro got started and everything it came from a tweet it's <laughs> being on social media is just a great way to connect with people and so um i uh last year in like august i think or september i had just put out a tweet um mostly mentioning that i'm going to i just had a busy busy quarter coming up um i was adjuncting uh two classes so i was teaching my own classes um over the summer and then in the fall i taught my own class at another university i was really excited about that i was also wrapping up my dissertation experiments um and that's when i officially announced that i was on the job market mm-hmm. um and that in itself was a little scary just because I was very openly saying the types of positions that I was looking for aren't what you traditionally think of um, mm. for someone who has now gotten a PhD, right? Like most of the time they expect you to be a PI and to run your own lab. And I had no interest in doing that <laughs> at all. Um, and I knew that from the beginning, like the reason I went to graduate school is because I love teaching and because I want to teach my own classes, um, not because I want to run my own research lab. Gosh, same here, actually. Okay, then. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> it's so good to hear just because, like, you know, normally, like, that's what they expect. And I think... Yes. Um, even being in graduate school, you know, they kind of push that on you a little bit. And they're like, Oh, but you could and you should. And I think there's also a little bit of guilt there, too. Because Mm -hmm. you and I both know, right, there aren't a ton of black PIs, there's not 
a ton of black people in our field doing all this research. And so you feel a little bit guilty because you know, you want to be that for someone else. You want to be an amazing PI and you want to run a research lab that's supportive and inclusive Mm -hmm. and, you know, really represents all the good that there is in science. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also knew that that would take away from what I set out to do. I want to have a classroom that is inclusive and that teaches students that they belong in this field and that shows them, you know, this is what a scientist looks like. This is what a professor looks like. Like This is, mm-hmm. this is what I look like and I belong here as much as anybody else. And so do yeah. you. Um, yeah. And I knew that that would take away from that. So I was very open in that I wanted a teaching focused job or I'm really also interested in program directing. Being president of Black and Neuro has shown me how much I really love leading diversity, equity, and inclusion-focused programming um, and how important that is to create those spaces for people. And so I knew that this is something I would really love doing. And I was just like, yeah, I'm open to either. If anyone you know knows of any job opportunities, just let me know. Um, and so Patrick Rothwell, who's over at uh, the University of Minnesota, had seen my tweet, and he is actually the one who contacted me and was like, hey, um, you know, I, <laughs> so he actually contacted one of my friends, Danielle Watt, who works at uh, Minnesota as well, um, and was like, what would it take for, to get her to come here? <laughs> um, and <laughs> she's the one who told him that, like, I really love teaching, and so, um, that's how the conversation got started, and, um, they, we kind of went back and forth a lot because originally we were looking at like me being a program director um, for their uh, post-bac programs. There's like the MINDS program, which is this post-bac program um, that's specifically to provide research experience for recently graduated um, students, specifically Black, uh, Hispanic, Indigenous students, um, or those from other like historically excluded backgrounds to provide them with research experience and opportunities for professional development. That way they are better prepared for applying to PhD programs um, or medical school. And so I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. Um, But also, you know, I really love teaching and I want to keep a foot in the classroom and I would love to be able to teach my own classes. And so um, together, uh, so us and uh, Paul Mermelstein, who is the um, associate head of the department there, we all kind of just worked together and came up with this new position that I have now, uh, which is absolutely amazing because it encompasses everything I want to do. I don't feel like I have to let go of anything. Like I get to do all of the things that make me excited and make me happy. And I really feel like I can help as many students as possible in this way. Um, And I'm really, really excited about it. So I'll be splitting my time between teaching undergraduate neuroscience classes and leading my own DEI initiatives, um, as well as co-directing the MINDS post-bac programs. I'm super excited. (laughs) Perfect for you. So, so perfect. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's amazing. Um, I really could not believe that they were so willing to work with me and that people like wanted to recruit me so badly and wanted me at their institution and want to pay me to do the things that I love to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. And one of the other things that you're very, very famous for beyond just being absolutely spectacular is running Black and Neuro, which Mm -hmm. is a wonderful initiative that I have been just cheerleading this entire time. I'm such, such a huge fan and in awe of every single one of you. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you've learned over the last, I guess, almost two years now of Black and Neuro, because it started summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. For those who might be listening to this and are interested in possibly starting a grassroots organization like Black and Neuro, 
what are some of the obstacles that you all have faced that someone could keep in mind so that they, you know, they don't hit their foot on the same rock, as my mom would say? (laughs) It's a good saying. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the biggest things that I have learned is that you need a lot of really good people who are equally passionate about it as you are. Mm -hmm. There were times, and I'm not afraid to admit this, that I couldn't focus on Black and Narrow. Like, although my heart was in it, I did not have the energy to give to it. I had yeah. experiments to run. I had, you know, teaching to do. I had other, like, things that were demanding my attention that I couldn't yeah. focus on Black and Narrow as much as I wanted to. And I felt a little bit guilty about that. But also, mm-hmm. because we have such an incredible team, there were other people who were willing to step up and be like, oh, no, I can do this, or I can do that, or, like, don't worry about it. I have it covered. And mm-hmm. I think that has been the like number one driving force of what has continued to make us be so successful is because we have so many absolutely phenomenal people on the team um, who are just so willing to put in the work and get things done. And that's why like every single chance I get, I love to shout them out because (laughs) it's it's not a one woman job, right? Like I can't just be president and founder and like I do everything. Like, no, that is (laughs) absurdly impossible. And it's a lot of work. And I think that's really what helps a lot is because there's so many people who care deeply about this organization and want it to succeed and are willing to donate their time and efforts. None of us get paid to do this. This is all volunteer work and we do it because we love it and because we know how important it is for our community. Um, and we're just willing to give our energies towards allowing it to continue and to seeing us thrive. Um, so I think that that has been the biggest thing is to find people who care about it as much as you do, but also understanding people's um, other roles and responsibilities outside of that, right? So for me as president, one of the biggest things I do is I check in with everyone on the team regularly. And also like every year I give them an out, right? So I'm like, you know, I appreciate all of the work that you've done. We love you a lot. Like we appreciate (laughs) everything you've done. But if you need to step back, if you need to, you know, focus on your study, because most of us are trainees, right? We're graduate Mm -hmm. students, postdocs, undergraduates. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I understand those things come first. And so if you need to step back from Black and Neuro, no hard feelings. You're always welcome to, you know, attend the events, come hang out with us. Like we still love you, but I understand. And so I think allowing people to not feel bad for needing to prioritize other things in their life, I think that that helps a lot too. Um, So, and like I said, having that big team helps in that regard as well, because then if someone does need to step back, someone else can step up. Mm. I want to say thank you before we move on to our next topic, because Black and Neuro was, came together at a time when I personally desperately needed it. And I know so many of us were searching for a space like this. And Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us dreamt that something like this would exist. The friends that I've been able to connect with because of Black and Neuro, just we check in with each other. We just make sure that each other's good. I met a couple of the BIN team in person and it just made me so happy. So thank you. Thank you for that initial tweet, for sending it out. And to all of the BIN team who hopefully will listen to this interview as well. Thank you to all of you for for your hearts and for your effort and for doing this unpaid when I think this, this work is so valuable, so incredibly valuable. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Like, I love, (laughs) sorry, it's going to make me emotional because like, I really love when I hear people from the community who, you know, like let us know how much it means to them and what they've gained from it. Cause really that's the whole point. Like, that's why Mm -hmm. we do this. It's for you. It's for other black, 
neuroscientists to see themselves and to know that like this community is here, right? Like we love you and we want to support you and we want you to know that there are people who care about your success so deeply. Um, And so I just, I love that you have, you have that, that just, it means the world to me. Well, thank you. You you all mean the world to me as well. I do want us to switch gears just a tiny bit because I'd love to hear about your research, the work that you've put together over the last, is it four or five years at this point? Mm-hmm. That, yeah, I'd love to hear about that as well. What do you study? I talked a little bit about it in the intro, but I'd love to hear more. Yeah, so I'm an addiction neuroscientist. Um, I study adolescent exposure to nicotine and cannabinoids like THC um, and how that impacts like long-term development and uh, relapse-related behaviors. So I use a mouse model to study this. And essentially what happens is I give the mice during adolescence, they're exposed to, we have this new system where we can expose them to vaporized nicotine. So um, I'm not sure how prevalent it is in uh, Canada as much, but definitely here in the US there is quite a bit of um, exposure to like vape pens and jewel pods and, oh, you know, yeah. all of those like electronic cigarettes. Yeah. So um, unfortunately, a lot of teens are using them too, because they have all of those like interesting flavors. And although mm-hmm. they're trying to ban some of them, um, they, it's still accessible to youth. Um, mm-hmm. And so having this vaporized nicotine exposure system, we can then expose the mice to vaporized nicotine and see how that impacts them later. I also give them um, THC. I'm doing oral THC. So mm-hmm. similar to how there's like edibles, right? There's like THC infused gummies and brownies and <laughs> all of those things that mm-hmm. also are very appealing to youth, right? <laughs> because yes, they're absolutely. fun, interesting flavors, right? <laughs> that they, they want to have access to. So I do this exposure where they're exposed to the vaporized nicotine, to the oral THC, or they're exposed to both of them, because what we actually see is there's a lot of co-exposure happening. So Mm -hmm. usually, you know, teens might be eating edibles and vaping nicotine, right? So, um, or they might be vaping both of them, or, you know, there's Mm -hmm. usually just some type of uh, co-exposure that's also occurring. So I have that um, being explored as well. Mm -hmm. And after the initial adolescent exposure, I let them grow up. And in adulthood, I performed a series of different tests, everything from like anxiety associated tasks mm-hmm. um, to food training. So we train them, um, we put them in these boxes and we train them to press a lever to get food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after they've learned this really well, right, because they're a little hungry. So they're like, oh, I can press this lever and I'll get food. This is great. <laughs> Um, Then I do a surgery and I put a catheter in their vein. Um, And this time when I put them back in the boxes after surgery, when they press the lever, instead of getting food, they can give themselves nicotine. So they can self-administer nicotine. And so what this allows me to see is after they've been exposed in adolescence to nicotine or THC or co-exposed to both, now in adulthood, do they self-administer more or less nicotine? Does this change their, you know, administration behaviors? And this kind of helps us see like, okay, if teens are being exposed to these drugs during adolescence, then is it in in adulthood, are they more at risk of uh, smoking more cigarettes or uh, more at risk of certain relapse-related behaviors? And what have you found so far? Uh, I'm in the process of analyzing all of these, all of the things that I have so far. Um, And in preliminary studies, um, when we were doing nicotine injections, because before we did the vaporized nicotine, we did injected nicotine. um, And we found that certain groups, so we're looking at both sexes, we look at both uh, males and females, um, which is really important because we do find sex specific effects. Mm. Um, And so males that are exposed to cannabinoids like THC um, self-administer more nicotine 
um, at lower and moderate doses um, than control groups, which is really interesting. Um, whereas females who uh, were exposed to nicotine during adolescence actually administer a little less, which is interesting. So it's curious to see how these things go. And like I said, those were some of the um, initial studies. And so I'm going to be analyzing for my dissertation, everything that we've been finding so far with the vaporized nicotine and the oral THC. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they compare. Absolutely. Now that you're switching over to a more teaching role, do you think there'll be anything, anything that you miss about research? Oh, I think so. I actually, I'm going to miss the mice. I will. Like, I, <laughs> I know that sounds weird, especially because it's not something I ever thought I'd be doing. When I was an undergrad, like, you would have never <laughs> had me even think about working with mice on a regular basis. But you get used to them. You really yes. do. Like, you yeah. really get used to them. And it's really interesting that kind of been attached I mean you can't get really attached unfortunately but like just being able to work with them all the time and the skills that I've gained are Mm -hmm. so niche but also like so amazing like when I tell people that I can get a mouse to self-administer nicotine (laughs) it's like what (laughs) but it's cool it's really cool (laughs) it is very cool and you can take all the knowledge that you've accumulated over the last couple of years in the research world and directly apply it into your teaching role as well so that's Mm -hmm. exciting I did want to talk a little bit about the notion of paying it forward, because that seemed like a theme that was pervasive in your earlier years and also now, earlier with the with your involvement in the programs at Fisk and learning things from your professors and wanting to be the representation that you saw your professors be for you. Did you realize it then, when you were still an undergrad, that you could pay it forward, that you wanted to pay it forward because of all of the amazing people and minds who had poured into you? Yes, in undergrad, I definitely did. I think that's, that is one of the major driving forces of why I wanted to become a professor was -hmm. because I knew how impactful it was for me to have these types of professors who genuinely cared. Like one of the, one of my favorite stories that I remind myself of as far as the type of professor I want to be um, is my freshman year, we were about to take like our first final um, for my intro to biology course. And Miss McCarroll, who's my uh, biology professor at the time, there were two students who were missing. And obviously, like I said, my school was very small. And so, you know, there weren't like a ton of students in the class, but she noticed that these two students were missing. And this would be the only time they were able to take their final exam. And so she had their friends call them on the phone and like wake them up and be like, hey, you need to come to this 8 a.m. final before you miss it. And like, I've never seen a teacher or professor, like anybody just care so much about wanting these students to have the opportunity to succeed. That was just like, like, wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that, that was just like one of the most impactful things for me because it wasn't just like a, oh, well they miss it. They're just going to fail. It was like, no, Mm -hmm. like you need to be here. You need to do this because we know you can do well. You just, you need to do it. And I think um, that was just like, I, I don't know, that just, it resonated with me so much as far as, you know, I care very deeply for my students and I want them yeah. to succeed as much as possible. And like anything I can do to help them get there, it just, it means the world to me because I firmly believe that every single person can understand science, mm-hmm. belongs in science, right? Mm-hmm. Can, deserves to see themselves as succeeding in this field. And they just need someone who can provide them with that reassurance and that guidance and be like, no, this is how you do it. Like, this is how you can do this because you can do it. 
Um, and so I just, I want to be, if I can, you know, even be that person for one or two people, it will <laughs> make my life. <laughs> like I just, I, <laughs> I really want them to see themselves uh, with this potential to succeed because I know that they have it in them. Yeah. I guarantee you it won't be just one or two. It's, I'm sure already it's in the thousands and I, I can't thank you enough for being who you are and what you are to us. We will continue to celebrate you, all of your achievements and everything that comes next. And I hope you feel that love and you feel that support in everything that you do. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And, and I do, I will say like, that has been one of the biggest highlights, um, just with the support that's come from this community. Like when, even me getting like this new position and stuff I feel like when I win like all of us win and yes I <laughs> I really love that well with that I will say thank you thank you so much Angeline for I, I'm not gonna call you by your first name I'm gonna call you Dr. Dukes because you know what it's basically <laughs> already done at this point thank you so much Dr. Dukes thank you for sharing your story and I look forward to seeing what's next oh thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it 